The following audio is from Jacob's Well Church. For more information about Jacob's Well Church, please visit www.jacobswellgb.org. One quick story I just want to share with you. Um, Stephen was a bachelor in seminary, and so uh, Trish and I, were we were married at the time, and we were pregnant with our first child. And as we were pregnant, well, as we went into labor, I called Steve and said, hey, we're going into labor, we're excited, yada, yada, yada. Well, Trisha is, is in the, the delivery room, and she is pushing, and someone comes into the room. Uh, and, and, you know, like you come into that room, and then there's a, a big, a big uh, uh, curtain up, thank you, so that there's a little bit of privacy. But we hear the door open, and then we hear it close. And the doctor and me and Trish all kind of look at each other, and the doctor says, who's there? And uh, we hear, it's Stephen, Dan's friend. <laughs> and in unison, we all yell, get out! So, um, so the, common, the common joke is that Stephen introduced himself to my son before I did. And so... Um, but we are great friends. We have, I even have a picture of him holding Corbin when he was born. Um, but Stephen is just a dear friend. I'm so thankful for the ministry he has. And so, Stephen, if you come up and just share with us from God's word this morning, really appreciate it. Thanks, man. Give me a hug. Uh, if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in the first chapter of John. Verses 35 through 51. From what I understand, you all have been working through uh, the book of John, and we are just going to continue in that, um, in this series. Uh, one of the things that I do as a church planner or as a missionary in a very foreign context is I'm very interested in looking at the beginnings of a church. So it's so nice for me to be at Jacob's Well. You all are sort of the, on the ground floor of a very young church, a very new church, and we all know that in a new place, precedents are always set, you know, uh, the font of your PowerPoint or the type of coffee, it's just someone's idea, but after a while, it sort of becomes the law, you know, and uh, you can actually find out a lot about an organization, a company, or even a person based upon their beginnings. Um, my brother-in-law, who's in the mental health um, profession just told me recently that uh, introverts and extroverts, it's actually not a genetic thing. It's something that we learn. It's a habit. And uh, the, the people that have done studies about this will say that actually in the first three weeks of your life is what determines whether you're an introvert or an extrovert. It's so fascinating. And so these beginning moments are so important. If you've ever held a small baby like I did with Corbin or if you've ever seen some, these Beginnings are so important, and we see this is, this is true for the people that actually decided to follow Jesus. These beginning times are so important, and as we look at these accounts of the very first disciples of Jesus, you actually learn a lot about the person of Jesus and what it means to be a follower of Christ. If you have your Bibles, let's read the first chapter of John, verse 35 through 51. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? 
And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, come and you'll see. So they came and saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day for it was about the 10th hour. One of the two who heard him speak or heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus and Jesus looked at him and said, so you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? And Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would be so kind to send your spirit. And as we're listening to the word, to your word, we pray that it would actually impact the way that we live and that it would encourage us, God. Please, won't you visit us and change us? We have so many issues. We have so many problems. Remind us of the cold water of the word on parched souls like ours. We pray that you would. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we uh, think through this passage today, we're going to sort of organize our thoughts around three questions. Uh, I'm, I'm kind of a question asker, and whenever I'm reading the Bible, I have thousands of questions that seem to arise. And the three questions are, why would Jesus want to have followers? Why would he want to have disciples, or you could even think learners? The second question is, why would they want to follow Jesus? And the third, the true American question is, what are they going to get? What are they going to get out of it? Um, And the first question we're going to look through is, why does Jesus want to have followers? And I was thinking about this as as I was preparing and studying for this sermon. I thought to myself, why would someone want to have lots and lots of followers? And then it made me think of, the Republican National Convention and the Democratic National Convention. And a lot of these people are sort of trying to swing you to their vote, to their, to who they are. They, so Mitt Romney's trying to get the independents or even the Democrats to come over. And Obama's wanting people to believe in him, to move forward for the future. But what if maybe six months ago, Mitt Romney or Barack Obama came to you and said, I want you to speak at our convention. Would you do it? 
Would you give us your wisdom, your insight on the economy or why Barack Obama is the only choice or my Mitt Romney is the future? And can you imagine what it would be like standing in front of a sea of people and giving your speech? And what about the next day when people look online or they look at the paper and there's thousands of articles about you dissecting every word that you said and every um that you said? What would it be like to be examined like that? And what if maybe in a month after these conventions, people were still talking about what you said? Or a year later, people said, oh, you know what Shauna said was so profound. Or 10 years from now, they're still talking about Chris's point about the economy. What if 100 years from now, people were memorizing your speech? Or 1,000 years from now, they memorized your life? (laughs) It's a little little much for me, honestly. Even though I have desires, these silly desires to be famous and important, I, I don't know if I want people to know that much. But really, that's actually what happened to Jesus. (laughs) We memorize accounts of his life. We want to talk about him. We want to study who was Jesus. And if you know Jesus, you know that he actually knows more than we think. In this particular account, there's two times when he says things that he shouldn't know, like the name of Simon or Nathaniel was under the fig tree. He, he, he knows things that he shouldn't know. And so he knew that when he had followers or disciples, people that were learning from him, that some of them would betray him or some of them would turn their backs on him or some of them would just get tired of following him. So let's let, let, let's let the Bible inform us for this question. If you can re- return back to the scriptures to set up the scene, we've talked about John the Baptist. I listened to Dan's sermon, and he was, t- he was sort of, his whole life was this great introduction to Jesus. That was sort of his dedication of his life, is that he wants to introduce who Jesus is. And he turns to two of his disciples. We have one of their names. The other one, people speculate that it could have been John, the one who wrote the Gospel of John. But if you, if you can put yourself in this situation, John says to two of his followers, Behold, the Lamb of God. And they start following him. And now a friend of mine, as I was studying for this sermon, he said, put yourself in everybody's position and think how they would think. So you're going to be Jesus for now. So you're Jesus, you're on a road, you're walking. You notice two men start to follow you. What's the first thing you think? I would probably put my wallet in my front pocket and I'd get nervous. I might change my direction of where I'm going, I might start running based upon how nervous I am. I mean, I lived in St. Louis for a little while, (laughs) and downtown St. Louis is a very dangerous place. But what does Jesus do? He turns around and says, what are you seeking? Okay, now put yourself in the disciples' shoes. This person of Jesus who's supposed to take away the sins of the whole world, he turns around to you and he asks you a question. What are you seeking? Now, this is your one chance. You've heard all about this Jesus. John has been really building him up. And you ask him, what, what, what could you ask him? If you had one chance to ask Jesus something, maybe something silly like, you know, will my son be an all-star quarterback in the future? Or... 
Or maybe a, a difficult personal question like, why did I grow up with such a hard family life? Or are the Packers going to win this year? You know, what are you going to ask him? And so you get this chance and he says, what are you seeking? And, he, and they say, where are you staying? <laughs> and it's sort of, you know, <laughs> a normal response would be like, well, I'm staying at the Holiday Inn. Weird. And then he keeps walking. What does Jesus say? He says, come, and you'll see. That's just like Jesus, isn't it? He, has these th- he says these things that aren't like the way that we say them. He does things that are so welcoming and so warm, but at the same time, they're startling. And what actually happens in this account is that they go together, and he ends up spending the night with them. You can sort of imagine this this. This question actually is much more profound than we think it is. Because when I read it, I said, what are you seeking? Where are you staying? It's so strange. But actually it shows their true interest is that they actually want to know who Jesus is. And this is a bit of an indictment for us because oftentimes we follow Jesus as a way to get something else. We'll follow Jesus because we really want our kids to be moral when they grow up. Or we follow Jesus because we really want a promotion. Or we follow Jesus because we really want to be important. But this passage reminds us that Jesus is actually just worth following all by himself. He welcomes us. And he doesn't just welcome these disciples, but he welcomes you and me. He welcomes us. He says, come, and you will see. But what he does is he doesn't just welcome us, but he actually changes us. If you look on in the narrative, Andrew quickly goes to get his brother, Simon. He says, Simon, we found the Messiah. Come on, you got to meet this guy. And he's in the distance. And Jesus says, you're Simon, right? I'm going to call you Peter. Now, if I had never met you before, which there are a lot of people here I've never met. <laughs> Let's say your name is Jim. And I said, you're Jim, right? I'm going to call you Larry. That's very unusual. No one does that. <laughs> See, for us to rename someone, normally there's an intimacy, there's a history that's happened beforehand. So I had a buzzed head growing up. All the time, I always buzzed my head. And so people called me Peach because it sort of described me. But this is actually very different the way that Jesus works. You see, Jesus is not describing them, but as a follower of Jesus, he's actually doing something much more. There was a commentator named D.A. Carson who said a very poignant quote. He said, this is not so much of a predictive utterance as a declaration of what Peter will become. You see, Peter means rock. And so Jesus, in following Jesus, as he welcomes us, he inevitably changes us into something much greater than actually who we are. And if you know much about Peter in the Bible, you know that he doesn't always act like a rock. But as followers of Jesus, we know that the change that will happen in our life will be something beautiful and something actually not a lot like us, but something even better. 
So why would Jesus want to have followers or disciples or learners? It's because he delights in us. He loves us. And he invites us on the mission to save the world, to take away the sins of the world, as Dan said last week. He invites us to be a part of it. It is a mystery of God's love. Why would he love us so much? Why would he invite us so much? Because that is actually who he is. But there's two sides to this relationship. The disciples, why would they want to follow him? And if you look, you can look throughout the passage. There's lots of reasons why people follow Jesus. But I want to focus on just one at the beginning. Uh, Simon, who is renamed Peter. Simon came because his brother told him to come. And this is a very worthy reason to follow Jesus. Some of us have kids. I have very young kids. And I, one of my biggest desires in life is that my son and my daughter would follow Jesus. Because we are convinced that at the heart of the world, of, of, of this world, is actually Jesus on the move, restoring and changing the whole world. But our culture has a, a doubt. It has an objection to our faith when people come to faith through their families. The objection goes a little bit like this. The only reason why you're a follower of Jesus is because you were born in America or because you were born in the West. If you were born in a different part of the world, you wouldn't follow Jesus. As if we, as followers of Christ, are limited to a, a cultural or a familial context in order to believe something. Now, this is a, a valid objection uh, and you could make the same objection for uh, Islam. So if you weren't born in Saudi Arabia, you would not be a Muslim. But the same part of that doubt actually applies to the doubt itself. If you were not born in a post-enlightenment, post, um, how do I say this? In a relativistic society, you would not have that objection. So if you go to a, a, a man on the street, a Moroccan friend of mine, and say, there's lots of ways to God. He's going to say, no, there's not. Because that's not a cultural objection to his faith. So as we think about it, we have to, whatever the doubts that we have in our hearts, which we all have doubts, we must apply the same rigor to those beliefs as we do the beliefs that we have, the other beliefs that we have. But as we look in this passage, we see that it's not the only way that Jesus finds followers. In this case, these people did not grow up in the church. They did not grow up in the West. They didn't grow up in America. They actually grew up in a very different, different place. So we, and there's different reasons why people are following Jesus. So if you look at John's disciples, they, were, they came because of theological reasons. They came because their mentor said, you need to follow Jesus. He is the one that I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. They were the theological groupies that found a greater teacher. Or what about Philip? Someone that Jesus just approached and he said, follow me. And Jesus, and then, and then he followed Jesus. And this has happened to some of us. We, maybe we're like John's disciples where we've, 
looked through the theological implications of our faith and found that Jesus is the superior one to them all. This actually happened to a, a prominent atheist blogger named Leah Labrisco. She had this uh, very informative blog on her atheism, and it was very evangelistic about it. And she looked at the claims of faith of Christ, and she just became a Christian. So she had a bit of a, de- a debate about what she should do about her blog. And it's a new blog exploring the person of Jesus for skeptics. Or maybe you had an experience with Christ where you were like Philip, that Jesus, you prayed to Jesus that he would heal your mom of cancer and Jesus healed her. You had a direct experience with him or maybe you had a dream like many of our Muslim friends where Jesus visited you. Or maybe you're like Nathaniel where a miracle happened and you could not help but follow the person of Jesus. You see, there are lots of reasons why we follow him. But it really just comes down to one, isn't it? He's actually irresistible. <laughs> now, when we, think, we say irresistible, it sort of th- makes us think like cake when I'm on a diet or someone that we know we shouldn't date, but we do anyway. But actually, Jesus is a type of irresistible that's kind of like... Uh, I'm staying with the Jacksons right now, and Corbin came to me while I was studying earlier. He came to me with these really sincere eyes and said, Mr. Stephen, you want to play football? And I said, all right, I'm in, you know. <laughs> so I stopped whatever I was doing. There was, a, there was an irresistibleness about it that as Corbin was telling me, he just wanted to, you know. And see, that the luxury that we have as disciples of Jesus is that we actually know more than the disciples knew in this context. We knew that Jesus, to the end, was faithful. We knew that Jesus died for his enemy, enemies. We know that Jesus, if we follow him, everything that's wrong about our life will be turned into our good. Everything that we have on earth, we will keep in heaven. And it's only going to get better. You see, as as Christians, we have this luxury of knowing the rest of the story about who Jesus is. And he is actually irresistible. As he says, won't you come and see? Can't you just hear him saying that to you? Come. Why don't you come and you'll see? So let's continue with our questions. Our third question being in the true American sense. What are we going to get? (laughs) All right. He may be irresistible to some, but what's he going to give me? All the disciples that are mentioned here were actually killed for following Jesus. It's a part about our faith that's very true, that as you follow Jesus, there are sacrifices that you have to make. And in this case, Every single one of these disciples, Andrew, was crucified in an olive tree. Nathaniel, Peter, Philip, crucified upside down. That at the end of their life, they thought Jesus worthy enough to die for. And this is something that we want, no? (laughs) Is it going to last till the end? Is this a phase in my life? Or will Jesus, as I follow him, will he be faithful to the very end, let's look at the second part of our 
narrative. Nathaniel has this really interesting interaction with Jesus. As Jesus is talking to him, he's saying things to Nathaniel that he should not know. And in some way, he has a miraculous understanding of who Nathaniel is. And right as he says, I saw you under the fig tree, which is sort of a strange thing, because his response to Jesus said, I saw you under a fig tree was, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Again, put yourself in this position. If I told you, I saw you at Walmart the other day, and you responded to me, Stephen, you are the king of Israel. You are the son of God. That's, uh, it, I, I, I kind of felt like there were some vis- verses missing. <laughs> but there's not. If you look at it, what's happening is that there's something about the fig tree that we don't know. There's some speculation on what it might be. But it was a, something that there's no way that Jesus could have known. Jesus was doing something outside of the realm of a, a regular human person that immediately Nathaniel wanted to ascribe to him divinity. And Jesus, which is so, again, he continues to surprise us. He says, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? In some way, rebuking him. And he says, listen to what he says. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now, this is a little cryptic because there's a lot of things going on here. But but remember that what Jesus is saying here is, it's so chock full. I encourage you to think about it in your community groups or even with your family after this. But what he is saying here, Jesus loved to refer to himself as the Son of Man. That was his favorite way to think about himself. And he's saying that angels are ascending and descending on me. And this actually, we don't see this in the New Testament. We have to look into the Old Testament. In Genesis chapter 28, Jacob, so in the line of faith, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob is, had a dream. And during that dream, he saw a ladder with angels ascending and descending on a place that he called Bethel. But in this context, he's saying, these angels are ascending and descending upon me. So instead of a holy place like Bethel, Jesus is saying, wherever I am, that's where you find access to God. So the great payoff of what do you get to follow Jesus is you get access to God. You get the favor of God upon you. You get the love of God and the commitment of God for not just you, but for your family. One of the things that I do as a missionary in my community of faith, we have a very small church building, but we chalk it full of food four times a year. We get about 35,000 pounds of food. And we give it out to a lot of our Muslim friends, some Spanish friends, and our Latino friends. And I'm the bouncer. <laughs> I have my little list of people that have gone through our interviews, our, our, all of the requirements in order to become part of our list, but there's 80,000 people in our barrio, in our neighborhood. And if you come to me with a hungry belly, I will not give you food because you, unless you're on my list, you did not meet the requirements in order to receive food. So people will send their six-year-old daughters to me and they'll say, I'm so hungry, Stephen, please give me food. And I'll tell them no. People will come up to my wife and say, why is your husband such a liar? Why doesn't he care about the poor? 
And she'll say, talk to him. (laughs) But no matter what they tell me, I will not let them in unless they have gone through the needed requirements. But there's one way to get past me. There's only one way to get past me. I work with another woman named Kelly, and she is on the inside. We have glass doors. And if she sees someone yelling at me, sometimes in Arabic, sometimes in Spanish, she will look and take notice of them. And sometimes, very infrequently, I get it wrong. And someone's not on, our, not on my list, but they're on her list. And she'll run out, she'll push open the doors and say, I'm so, so sorry. There's been a mistake. This person is with me. Stephen, give them a number. They're going to come in. And so she gives kisses and apologies and all these kind of things. And see, this is actually our situation. Is that the the vision and the idea that God wants for humanity is so great. It's so big. It's so high that we have fallen short. That we in some way have not made the list. We have not done the requirements to be acceptable to God. But Jesus in his love and his mercy has run out of our church doors and said, no, 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 this one is with me. This follower is with me. Come, come in. And so this access to God is because of kindness of Jesus. The person of Christ doesn't just welcome you. He changes you. And he doesn't just have this sense of kindness in a very general way. He says, no, no, they're with me. And so to know Jesus is to know God. It's to be free. And he offers this to you. So as he invites you and says, come and see, Jesus is coming out for you. So I want to encourage you as Jacob's well, to fo- for those of you who don't know Jesus, this is a great opportunity to follow him. And for those of you who do, be reminded that the kindness of God actually put skin on and came to rescue you, but at the cost of his very life. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word and how rich it is and that you have made us rich by giving it to us. Help us to enjoy the riches of knowing you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.